Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. And the defense in this case has always asserted that this horrible, ugly thing happened because those children lived in a horrible, ugly environment for years in which they were terrified, in which Eric became an extraordinarily fearful and anxious child so that when he reached an age and a place in his life where he could not take the worst of it anymore and made some feeble effort to stop it by going to his, frankly, equally screwed up brother for help, this is what ultimately ensued. And what we wanted to do in presenting our evidence was make you understand why it was Eric reacted with such fear why it was he believed that his parents were about to kill him and why it was this happened the way it did. And so how do you prove that? I mean, obviously, if I had a videotape of Jose Menendez performing a sex act on Eric, I would have put that on and I wouldn't have needed all those other witnesses. But the crimes that were committed against Eric Menendez don't, did not wind up in this case and don't ever wind up with the police coming in and taking pictures. It's very easy to go to a crime scene of a homicide and to take all the gruesome pictures in the world and parade them later in front of a jury and get those people upset. But where is the picture of Jose Menendez bending Eric over the footboard of his bed when he's 12 years old so that his father can now go all the way in spite of the child's screams? Well, there is such a picture. But unfortunately, it only lives in Eric's mind now. And I doubt very much that Jose Menendez was very troubled by it during his lifetime. But I can't give you that picture. I can give you something very unusual to find in cases like this, which is some hard evidence of molestation. And hard evidence of molestation is very hard to come by because molesters are secret. They are sneaky. After all, they are exploiting weak little children. And they hide it because they know the rest of us don't think much of that. I'm going to leave these up here. And I'm going to leave them up here because ultimately you'll get over the trick that's being played on you and the shock value will diminish. So that when you go back into the jury room to decide this case, you're not going to decide it because you're still upset over those photographs. And I'm not going to leave my photographs up here because I'm not trying to shock you. Now, this is a copy of the photograph that's in, in the exhibit, but this is only a copy of it. And I'll show you why I'm putting a copy up. Now, this is the crime of Eric Menendez. And I cannot show you the crime that Jose Menendez committed on him, but you heard about some of the things that he liked to do to his little boy. And one of them was to stick tacks like this in his thighs and in his butt and to run needles across his penis. Now, that's this man. And I don't recall if there are autopsy photographs of this man where you can see his penis, the one that he stuck in this body that Mr. Kuriyama tells you is all made up. The proof 
that it isn't all made up is who Eric wound up being. And I put Dr. Vickery on the stand to tell you how sick this kid got behind the home life that these two very dead people provided him with. Now there's one thing that Mr. Kuriyama, oh, I want you to look very carefully at this proof sheet. This is a proof sheet of the sequence of the photographs from Eric's sixth birthday party. These photographs were found in this envelope. This envelope has the handwriting of his mother, Mary Louise Menendez, and she had a beautiful handwriting. She was a school teacher. And she wrote Eric's birthday, November 1976. And inside this envelope were the original small prints taken on that roll from which this is an enlargement. And also inside that envelope were the original negatives. And so what we did was we had blow-ups made from the original negatives. And we had a proof sheet made of the order of the photographs on the roll. So we could see which was taken first, which was taken second. Now I happen to know, for reasons I cannot reveal to you, what the prosecution's theory is about this photograph and the one of Lyle, which I will also show you. <coughs> this is the one of Lyle's nakedness, which was saved by his mother, kept in that envelope. Now, both from the cross-examination of Eric, I suppose, uh, was the first clue that the prosecution's theory is that the boys, the children, took the naked pictures. And somehow that theory, I think, has to do with some kind of visual perspective that they want you to speculate about based on the height of the person who took the picture. Now, th that's wonderful, except people who take pictures can bend down and take pictures of little children's genitals, even if they're big people, even if they're grown-ups. But frankly, there is absolute hard proof that Eric Menendez did not take this nasty picture of his brother. And here's the proof. If I haven't mispl misplaced it, okay. Here it is. The proof sheet is the proof. The sequence of the photographs. Here is a gathering of people. Here is Lyle in the bathtub, one can assume, the morning of the birthday party. And here is Eric in bed. Now, Eric is in bed when this naked picture of Lyle is being taken. See, here's the next picture on the roll. Now, are we supposed to believe that six-year-old Eric, who testified he was not allowed to handle a camera until he was 12 or 13, got out of bed to go take a naked picture of his brother, and then got back into bed so someone could take a picture waking him up. And it isn't until way down here on the roll that the naked picture of Eric shows up, and then a picture of Mrs. Menendez's favorite thing, her animal, Tristesse. And I think it's really amazing if you, if you could go back and remember the testimony, for example, of Terry Baralt who was Jose's sister. She was asked about Mary Louise Menendez and who was it or what was it that Mary Louise Menendez was, uh, showed affection for. And when she started talking about the animals, you could see the animation even in Mrs. Baralt's face. Oh, Kitty loved her animals. She showed them all sorts of affection. She took such good care of them. She never showed anything like that to her children. But here's a picture of her favorite little dog, Tristesse, next to her naked child. I promised I wouldn't leave him up, and I won't. I'm going to talk later about all of the evidence that corroborates the sexual molestation of these boys in this case. I keep promising what I'm going to do later.
you can't do everything at once. I will say this about the molestation evidence right now, and that, and that is this. We presented this evidence through the testimony of Eric Menendez, and Mr. Kuriyama refused to ask him a single question about it. He ran from this evidence. Because he knew if he questioned Eric, if he used the tool that you're supposed to use to question a witness, which is cross-examination, which he does rather well. I mean, he cross-examined Eric about the crime scene ad nauseum. He questioned him about what they did after <clears throat> for a day and a half. He knows how to ask questions. And he is a very aggressive cross-examiner. He argues a lot. He insinuates. He's quite sarcastic and snide. He's got all the tools of the trade. And he used them. And he just spoke to you about how successful he was using those tools. Now, I will dispute some of the things he said about how successful he was, but it is true. The purpose of cross-examination is to try to show when a witness is not telling the truth or is mistaken in their testimony. And Mr. Kuriyama does it rather well. But he didn't ask a single question about the molestation. Why? Because he was afraid that he would not be able to show that it wasn't true. And he didn't want you to hear it. He wanted you to hear about the shooting. He wants you to see bloody photographs over and over. But he didn't want you to hear Eric Menendez talking about these hideous things again. He hoped perhaps you'd forget about it somehow. That it would leave your consciousness if he didn't cross-examine about it. They put Dr. Ozeal on the witness stand who said dreadful things, horrible things. Things that if you believe they're true, yes, they're guilty of first degree murder. That's what Dr. Ozeal was. He was the entire centerpiece of their case. He is the only witness who could give you first degree murder. It rises or falls with him. There's nothing else. And they put him up here and he said these dreadful things and we went, we cross-examined him on everything he said they said. We cross-examined him on everything he said he did, all his reasons, all his motives, what happened in the session, how were they conducted. We didn't run from that evidence. And we were also able, not just by cross-examining him and showing what sort of witness he was, we were able to show what sort of person he was, both through the way he testified, the things he said, and the other people that we put on to talk about him. And that's what you do. If this is really a search for truth, you cross-examine witnesses and you test what they're saying to see if it's true. And they ask nothing about the molestation and therefore it is totally uncontradicted evidence. Uncon Nobody came in here and said Jose Menendez didn't or couldn't have molested his kids. Nobody came in here and said Eric told me the molestation was a fantasy. It's completely uncontroverted. Now, it wasn't put on for you to say, oh, these people are monsters. They did dreadful things. They deserve to die. <coughs> we never called Jose or Mary Louise Menendez monsters. Their children never said a negative word about them in life, and they didn't say a negative word about them in death. They didn't say they were terrible people. They were bad people. All they did was tell you what it was like living with them. What were the things that were done to them? How did they accommodate themselves to it? And how did they feel about themselves and about life as a result of having been raised by them? They didn't get up here and call their parents names. And neither did anybody else that we called. They described these people. They talked about their personalities. They talked about their character. They talked about how they raised their kids. But they didn't call them names. They didn't call them vicious beasts or monsters. And they weren't monsters. They were people. They were people who did some dreadful things to their children. But they were people. And Eric is a person, not a vicious brat, not a cold-blooded killer. He's a person. And in order for you to decide why he did what he did, you have to decide what kind of person is he. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. 
Now this week, I'm continuing my fascinating conversation with juror number nine in the first Menendez trial, Hazel Thornton. Now the clip at the top of the episode, while you just heard defence attorney Leslie Abramson delivering her closing argument in the case against Eric Menendez. Now Leslie was referencing the shocking and bloody crime scene photos that the prosecution team put up on a board for the jurors to see. And while she was talking, she was adding horrific photos of little Eric and little Lyle's naked bodies. And as she talked about Jose sticking tacks in Eric's thighs and bottom and running needles across his penis, she put tacks into those same positions on the photo. Now, this is just absolutely horrific, but you need to understand the nature of this level of sadistic abuse. And for me, it's obvious that someone else took these photos other than the boys. Why take photos like this and then hide them? Those who sexually abuse children do so in secret, but often they do take photos so that they can fantasise in private later using those photos. Now, you might also recall that I discussed that I found a photo of Jose with both Eric and Lyle on his lap and his hand cupping Lyle's genitals. This photo was in plain sight, in plain view of everybody. And this is all evidence, along with the 51 witnesses who testified about the abuse. Now, I will share with you that this is more evidence than you would have in most other cases. Okay, with that having been said, let's pick straight back up where we left off, talking about the second trial and the jurors being given key information about the Menendez family dynamics and abuse by Jose of both Lal and Eric at the penalty stage of the case. So after the jurors had made their decision that the brothers were both guilty, which is just shocking to me and angry-making, quite frankly. But I'm going to try and keep my anger in check Okay, back to Hazel. If you can't take it back, you can't take it. You can't say, "Oh, you know, we, you can't tell the judge we take back our verdict." And I don't know why the judge hasn't been held to any account for changing all the the rulings for the second trial. I don't know if that's even possible. But even in one of the appeals, Judge Justice Kaczynski said, "Oh, looks like they changed all the." rulings. And that looks like collusion to me. He, he used the word collusion. And if you use the word collusion, that's, that's a bad thing. Isn't that like a crime even maybe, but nothing happened. He didn't say it was collusion. Therefore, I'm not going to uphold the verdict. He said, oh, it looks like collusion to me, but I'm going to uphold the verdict. I don't understand that at all. Yeah. that seemed very strange. But I do think it's huge that some of the jurors said that they would have reached a different verdict had they have known about the abuse and the evidence. And that, for me, tells you everything about the evisceration of the defence's case. And we don't have the penalty phase in, in the UK or Australia. Um, so that's something unique here to America, where you can hear more evidence at that stage it seems very bizarre to me that if it's relevant, it should be within the actual trial itself so that the jurors can make a more informed decision. They call them factors in mitigation and factors in aggravation. You know, reasons why you want to maybe not penalize them so much and reasons why you might want to penalize them more. Yeah, but when we're talking about death penalty cases, you know, I feel very strongly about well, the death penalty and cases like this make me feel even stronger against it because things can be framed and people can be framed and you can end up in the criminal justice system and you can end up with political decisions being made behind the scenes which are nothing to do with you as we've seen in this case. And I do believe that that factors in when you look at Judge Weisberg's history and holding judges to account. I think I've seen it once in, in my career but why the decisions weren't critiqued or challenged via the appeal process. I mean, that seems the most obvious, but it just seems again to me, is it political in the, with Rodney King, there were the riots and there were 52 deaths 
right? And so people don't want to make decisions that seem unpopular. Because Lyle and Eric were sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, there's also a possible sentence of life with the possibility of parole, but they got life without the possibility of parole. It's because they got life without the possibility of parole that they have not been eligible for a case review based on new laws. There have been new laws. One is about youth offender parole hearings. If you if you were under the age of 25 at the time of your sentence, you get to have a case review based on your youth, but they don't get that privilege because of the life without possibility of parole part of their sentence. And there's also battering and its effects. If you were not allowed to provide evidence of your abuse during your trial, you get a case review. Unless you're the Menendez brothers and you were sentenced to life without possibility of parole. So the impact is still being felt. Now, there are two new key pieces of evidence, aren't there, in the case? And I know you refer to it, your, your, the miracles that may well happen in the case. But I think the, the first one about the letter that's resurfaced that Robert Rand handed to the lawyer, Cliff, that he was given by, who was it, Andy Carno. It was Andy's mother who found it in his effects. So that letter that Andy Carno had in his possession that was handed to Robert Rand is really important because it was nine months before the killing happened. And in that nine months, well, Eric had confided in his cousin and said, please don't tell anyone about what's happened. And he really made him promise that he wouldn't say anything because he was in fear of his father. And I just want to read just one of the paragraphs that is really important, I believe, in the habeas of new evidence being put to the court about the case. So he wrote, I've been trying to avoid dad. It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. I can't explain it. He's so overweight that I can't stand to see him. I never know when it's going to happen and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might come in. I need to put it out of my mind. I know what you said before, but I'm afraid. You just don't know dad like I do. He's crazy. He warned me a hundred times about telling anyone. I mean, this letter, you didn't hear about it at the first trial and apparently it wasn't presented at the second trial, but this is clear evidence that he was fearful and he was being abused and that there had been threats made to him. Oh, there was lots of evidence that we didn't hear. There was so much evidence that even in the first trial, they had to you know, figure out what to present and what to leave out. Well, I think the other important thing about this letter is it says that the abuse was ongoing. You know, it wasn't something that had stopped. He was 17 at the time. And I think it's really important that people understand the abuse had not stopped. It was ongoing. And, and as he said, it was getting worse. And what I've now discovered is that just before Kitty and Jose were killed, that Eric had lost a tennis match and they had to return home. Jose Menendez wanted them to go home. He'd lost this tournament. Kitty's father was dying and Jose refused to go and see her father and said that they would all return home. And he abused and raped Eric as punishment and that the rapes had turned into much more violent punishment rapes when he had done things that Jose was very angry about and that... that Eric had said to Lyle what was happening and he just couldn't he just couldn't go through it anymore and Lyle had asked Kitty there'd been an argument with Kitty between Lyle and and her and Lyle had said are you going to do anything to to stop him from doing this and Kitty said no that she basically knew what was going on and that nobody had intervened when she was being abused and I believe that that was a critical moment in the realisation that a mum knew and did nothing to protect them. So they realised they were just on their own. They had nobody. But also the fact that the door had been closed to UCLA. The Eric, who was going to be going away and would be staying overnight at UCLA, his father put a stop to that and had told his sister that Eric had to be at home. He had to be supervised by Jose and he'd paid UCLA a lot of money to 
allow Eric to be at home. And the, there was also an application to Brown on scholarship that Eric had completed, but Jose just kept in the bottom drawer. So he clearly had planned to keep Eric at home and entrapped. And these are the things that give us now a, a much better understanding of the steps that were taken. What were the things that happened that got them to that place where that decision was taken in those moments that evening? And if you do believe that that omni-threat, that person who's omnipotent, that person who's closing down every av avenue of your life, you know, this isn't a stretch too far. This is about understanding of being in their shoes and realising what that meant for Eric of not knowing each night when he was going to be raped and how, and that there was nothing that he could do about it. And I felt very sad hearing, you know, once you join all these dots together, it's really difficult to get your head around how this outcome could be so different from what really went on. And once Lyle confronted Jose with the knowledge that it was still going on with Eric and threatened to expose him, they, they had every reason to think that Jose would retaliate. And because they had been raised the way they had been, they were in such a state of hypervigilance that everything their parents said and did from that time, moment on sent them further and further into a panic. And people talk about, well, but they got the guns. Yeah, well, at what point do you call it planning to murder as opposed to preparing to defend yourself? Yeah, I mean, that's where people need to understand that omnipotence, that omni-threat. And people might say, well, it sounds a stretch too far or they're being paranoid. Well, not when you're living it, you're breathing it. And the person who has harmed you is that very person who's meant to protect you and love you and nurture you and look after you. But now you're saying you might expose them and they have a lot to lose. I mean, he was a very well-respected business figure, revered. People were fearful of him. Adults were fearful of him. So that's why I find it very hard to get my head around the fact that six men decided at the first jury, having heard what they did, to vote very differently from the six women. And six women, you being told that you were emotional. And all these what felt like very misogynistic insults being leveled at you for making a determination based on the facts and the evidence. I mean, this is not only in the jury room, but in the media, in the public afterwards. We were in love with the brothers, and we voted emotionally and not logically. Uh, we were too stupid to understand the jury instructions, and we were enamored of Leslie Abramson and her arguments. They even called us Leslie's girls in the media. And you know what? I'm proud to be a Leslie's girl because she was awesome. And her arguments made sense. They made more sense than the prosecution's arguments did. If the prosecution's arguments had made any sense, I would have, and if there had been any weight to them, they didn't have a single psychological expert witness to contradict the witnesses that we did see on the defense side. Their theories didn't make sense. And they were insulting. They insulted the jurors at every step, the ones who were understanding the psychology of abuse and thinking that it might apply to this case. Hey, lovely listeners. If you like this episode, please feel free to share it with others and take a moment to support my sponsors. All sponsors are on my website, crime-analyst.com, and the promo codes will be there too, and in the show notes. My sponsors allow me to bring Crime Analyst to you, so please consider supporting those who support this show. Thank you. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? 
Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger, and healthier-looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Well, that's absolutely disgraceful. I mean, I think the name calling of you six female jurors is disgraceful. Perhaps you were the ones that had the better handle on it. I always think that when people can't be controlled, then uh, the immaturity side, those who want to control, go into the personal name calling and and so on. But perhaps you were the ones who had a much better grasp of what was really going on in the case. Busy trying to analyze the evidence and come to an agreement. The men were busy ye- yelling and pounding their fists on the tables and calling us names. <laughs> There we go. The clear divide. And yes, from Leslie, from what I have saw of the way that she represented the boys and the way that um, she challenged things, I mean, what a fierce advocate. And the story just made sense because it was the truth. And I think you don't have to defend so hard when it is the truth because it speaks for itself. You had experts who were talking to what they experienced and Perhaps the prosecution were just so arrogant that they thought the blood and how brutal the murder was with these Beverly Hills preppy boys, they'd done enough in the media that they didn't bank on six very smart, adept jurors who saw the case for really what it was. And maybe if they'd turned it on its head and they'd accepted the abuse and said something like, well, lots of people are abused, but these two went on to kill... And maybe if they'd tackled that head on, maybe there would have been a different outcome, but they didn't. They just tried to deny that that abuse had ever taken place, which when you've got 51 people cooperating the abuse with no agenda, it just makes them look ridiculous. But of course, we know at trial two, the judge took care of the evidence to ensure that the next jury wouldn't hear the details of that abuse. And I have to say, I've worked many, many cases in this case really got to me. And it got to me on the basis that these were two little boys who should have been protected. And there were so many safeguarding opportunities to intervene and help them so that perhaps this wouldn't have happened. But that's not what happened here. They were left as two boys then turning to men at the will of Jose Menendez and Kitty. And you know, if you keep kicking a dog, it may well turn around and bite. And that's as basic as behavior is that at some point that dog might bite back. It will be loyal for a long time. But I've seen it in many cases. And I just think that vilifying the boys, for me, it's just a spectacular safeguarding failure, first and foremost. And the sheer arrogance of the prosecution and their lies Uh, what bother me the most, because we also know there's a new piece of evidence that although you had prosecution lawyers saying there was no history of abuse in Jose Menendez's background, well, now you've got um, Roy 
from Menudo and other boys coming forward saying that he had abused them and Roy specifically talking about Jose Menendez and how sadistic Jose Menendez was. So now you have other corroborating evidence and that's going to be really important. And I hope that the new evidence is assessed and rigorously thought through in light of we're now 33 years on. It's another Menendez miracle, corroboration, who knew? that this would happen all these years later. But back to the six people who believed their story, or at least believed it enough to give them the benefit of their reasonable doubt. Hello, legal terms, reasonable doubt, burden of proof. (laughs) There was also six people on the other jury, the first trial on Lyle's jury, who voted for manslaughter. And uh, they weren't split evenly down gender lines. And I remember at the time... I wasn't watching court TV during the trial, but afterwards I learned that court TV had taken a poll and of those people, and there's nobody, there's, unless you're a juror, one of the principals in the case, you're not spending, you're not watching every minute of the trial until court TV uploaded the videotapes on their website. Um, but at the time there was a poll of court TV watchers And I don't know how they, I don't know what the questions were. Like if you had to say how many hours of it you watched or you just were on your honor to say you watched it all or what. But what struck me was that 60% of court TV watchers sided with the defense. So it's like the more you saw of it, the more you did tend to believe them. And I don't really know how you could... If you didn't know that much about it, if all you had was prosecution bias articles from the 90s that you Googled up on the internet, I don't know how you could ever reach the conclusion that they were not guilty of first-degree murder. So I don't even blame people who think that, but I certainly do appreciate people who have open minds even today who can listen to a podcast like this that really... Uh, examines the issues and doesn't just dredge up an article from the 90s to talk about. And people are changing their minds right and left. The fact that people are changing their minds doesn't get them out of prison, but it certainly doesn't hurt for people to know more about abuse in this case, and maybe it will reach the right ears. Well, I would hope that now people are much more into critical thinking, i.e. there's social media, you can dig into cases in a different way and that you're not just going to accept that you're going to be spoon fed by one side of the narrative, which was the DAs and the prosecution. And admittedly, I thought I understood the case and having spent weeks now in it, there's still new things I'm learning And I would hope that all my listeners are open-minded enough to listen to what we've said, and then they can go and test the evidence and what we've said by watching the testimonies, by going on your website, Hazel, by reading your book, by reading Robert Rand's book, The Menendez Murders. All of what's in his book is prima facie evidence, and he's followed it through all this time. Watch Law and Order True Crime, The Menendez Murders, because that eight-part, it's not a documentary. It's the only dramatization of the case that I think is accurate, and it's based on Robert's book. So that's Dick Wolf's Law and Order, isn't it? The the Menendez, it's actually on Peacock at the moment, and you can watch um, the Menendez and Menudo boys on there as well. Yep, yep. And, And it really does take eight episodes to tell the whole story. If you don't If you tell the story of the Menendez brothers killing their parents and you do not include the second trial in the aftermath, you've not told the whole story and what happened there. So I love this podcast because you're really digging into all the details and you are, you're, you're not just perpetuating the greedy rich boys narrative that was so prevalent in the nineties. So thank you for that. Well, I test all of the evidence and the facts and go to multiple sources. And yes, I'm, I've been watching Dick Wolf's Law and Order True Crime, the Menendez murders on Peacock. And I think it's very interesting the way he's framed certain things and that he came out with a statement saying that he believed, you know, that the boys really, it's a miscarriage of justice that yes, they deserve to um, have a consequence for what they did, but the consequence that happened doesn't fit 
the crime, in essence, of what happened prior, the whole continuum. So, yes, I think that's a, it's a very interesting fictionalised, even down to hearing that Jose Menendez paid off Lyle's girlfriend and paid for her to go to Europe, sponsored her through the tennis to get rid of her and get her out the picture because he was looking after Lyle's future. People say, Dudalon Smith went to the police to tell them about the Menendez brothers. No, she didn't. She went to the police to tell them about Ozeal having kidnapped and raped her and held her hostage. And it just came out by accident about the Menendez brothers. They, they, those two could have a whole series of their own. Not that it changes anything. But Eric, well, Eric told his therapist, Eric, well, that's because his parents were dead that he told his therapist. When they were alive, he was assigned to that a therapist in lieu of being punished for something. And he... They were not confidential sessions. Everything he said in those sessions was reported back to his parents. Talk about omnipresent and inescapable and controlling. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, that therapist that he was assigned for his burglaries, because we talked about them not being perfect and acting out and doing things. And by the way, most victims of abuse do act out. They do do things that might look on the face of it like they're difficult or that they're whatever it might be, the label you put on them, but they don't grow up in a normal way. They do things that stand out. They're not going to be perfect. It might be alcohol, it might be drugs, it might be stealing, breaking and entering, risk-taking behaviour, and that's what Eric did. Which makes it all the more remarkable how they have contributed so greatly to their prison community as adults. They've created programs to help rehabilitate their fellow prisoners, even though they themselves have had no hope of getting out of prison. They've become educated, they've had, they've become, they've matured and become productive members of their, their society. But the irony is that's probably a healthier environment in terms of their psychosocial development than the one that they were in. And I think I heard, you know, one of them say that being in prison meant that they weren't being raped and abused anymore. And when that is constantly happening, that drip, 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 the thousand cuts, that's how we understand coercive control. And that's how we understand child abuse and domestic abuse. And they're not perfect and they never were. And you can't expect... Um, boys who've been abused to be and the decisions that they took, well, I don't believe murder is the right or killing is the right outcome. But when you have nothing else and no one else, when you're trapped and entrapped, when you're being tortured. It's only wrong if you have planned it. If you, if you planned it and you did it and people, you can say it's wrong. If you were acting out of fear and didn't plan it, then is it right or wrong? It's not a matter of right or wrong in that case. But you see, even with planning, I've worked on a lot of cases where women who've been abused for years, then they may kill and they may kill the perpetrator, but they have to plan it because in the moment they don't have the tools to be able to kill because of the power imbalance. But the problem is then once they plan it, it's premeditation. So they get the longer sentence. But with coercive control, that's unfortunately it does happen and it happens with children and it happens with adults and when you can't see any other way out. And I do think that these boys were failed in, in every way. And it's good that they've gone on to be much more productive. Um, and I would imagine that because they are rules players, as in they've been indoctrinated to play by the rules, probably in another way, prison suits them. They would be the model prisoners because they've been indoctrinated to act by rules because of fear of consequence. And these are the invisible things that nobody else sees of how they had to live their life of Eric crying and having a meltdown because he wants ketchup or lemon and people think well, he's just being difficult. But it was only those two flavours that would take the semen taste out of his mouth. That is something no child ever should have to think about or deal with. And why I say that, and it really upsets me to say it, is because I want to just go back to what they were living in and what their reality was, so that when we're in our nice homes and we make these judgments about them because we read this article, well, then that's not the full story as we know. And that's why I'm so thankful to you, Hazel. I mean, it took you 20 years to speak out, but I'm so glad that you have done. And I've really 
enjoyed's the wrong word for the conversation, but I think you've really shed light on the behind the scenes and you've shown what a fierce warrior you are because I'm sure that this hasn't been easy for you. Either sat in court listening to it all, then the aftermath for you. Can you say a little bit about that, the impact on you? I did speak out right away uh, in terms of my book was published in 1995 originally. And which was before this, after the first trial, before the second trial. And I did things like I spoke at, at law conferences and in front of uh, groups of lawyers and groups of, I, I spoke at universities, students and other people comprised the audiences. And I did interviews at that time. I've done um, documentaries. But then I stopped talking about it because my book went out of print. And I blame O.J. Simpson personally for the fact that I'm not a millionaire today because he stole all the – the Menendez case was the, the trial of the century until O.J. came along. And uh, my book went out of print, and then I didn't talk about it because it's too hard to talk about if you can't say, go read my book. Now there are high-quality other books before there were low-quality books and low-quality dramatizations and prosecution bias articles. And now there's more to refer people to, uh, to get more information. Because like you said, I can't sum it all up in a soundbite. I can't even sum it all up in an hour of a podcast. But I can say, go read my book. There's more in the book that I can say here. And when it was out of print, it was just too hard to talk about. And then, well, through a series of events, it got republished and updated. And uh, it became easier to talk about because of that and because of the Menendez miracles. Dick Wolf started it by saying that he thought they'd been, you know, overcharged and oversentenced. And he, Mr. Mr. Law and Order, you know, he's usually siding with the prosecution in terms of his shows and his his. This is the first case that he ever made a a true crime. His stories are ripped from the headlines, but not. They're not documentaries, and they're not about specific cases. This one was about the Menendez murders, and it was eight episodes. He'd never done that before. He felt so strongly about it. I call that Menendez miracle number one because it was the first time the the court TV um, recordings were not available yet for the first trial. This was 2017 that he did Law & Order True Crime. And it was the first time that I had ever seen a portrayal of what I experienced and what I knew to be true of the case. And so it didn't, it didn't feel like it fell on me to have to explain in a soundbite or in an hour. It was the first time that people started to come around and learn more about the case and there started to be, and then even though it was based on Bob Rand's book, his book wasn't published yet. It was, the draft was there for Dick Wolf to read and to make a series out of. But it was not like people had been had that book to read either. So it's just amazing to see the past several years. And then, then there was the Me Too movement and the Men Too movement. And there was the, the new generation of Menendez supporters who we sometimes call the TikTok generation. And there were so many more people believing them that I didn't feel like I had to be the only one believing them anymore. Well, thank goodness you were speaking out and thank goodness for Robert Ram writing the book. And slowly, I think it's all starting to unravel and unravel in a good way of people paying attention to the facts and the evidence. And what I know about the true crime community, certainly the one that I'm in, is that people love the facts and the details and the nuances and reading you know, voraciously. Oh, there's tons of podcasts. There's tons of true crime podcasts and shows where they still have to feel like they have to devote half the time to the prosecution, even though it's all about the greedy rich kids. They don't don't know the nuances. They don't know the details. They don't spend the time that you have spent to really learn about the case. Well, for me, it's all about the truth and justice and what the facts and the evidence say. And You know, for me, I just feel that it's very clear. And if this trial were to happen now, maybe different, there would have been a different level of charging, a different outcome totally. But 
that's not where we are. There is a, the habeas has been filed and we'll see whether there's another miracle. And 33 years, I do believe, is long enough. And I've worked on cases and been uh, exposed to other cases where the perpetrator has killed and it's been premeditated and they've been out in seven years. So all sorts of things can happen at trials and you never really know what will happen. But I think the framing of this case has been a major problem and framing in every way, the media, what happened at court. I'm glad that you feel that Dick Wolf's portrayal, particularly the courtroom side of what you lived through and experienced, was actually accurate to your experience. That's huge in terms of, you know, my listeners going to to look for the show and know that what they're watching and digesting is is factually accurate. So let's see what happens. And it's just been, you know, wonderful to talk to you to help shed light on this case and to share your knowledge. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Laura. I'm jumping in here to wrap the episode and my interview with Hazel Thornton. I hope you found it as interesting and thought-provoking as I did. You see, for me, this case was never about whether they did it. It was about the why. And in normal families, people don't kill each other. So you have to start there. With this case, the very fact that they looked so successful as a family and normal means you have to ask the right questions about what's going on and whether that was a facade. And if it were a facade, who benefited? For example, did it benefit two little boys? Two little boys who knew no better. Also the question, why didn't they just leave when they were being abused, Well, that's the number one question that people ask of abuse victims, normally women, but here it's being asked of children. It's the wrong question to ask when there's child sexual victimisation and coercive control. Next week, I get into all of this with living legend and shero Dr Anne Burgess, who interviewed Eric and was one of the expert witnesses at the first trial. Dr Anne Burgess knows this case incredibly well, And as the woman who wrote the book on rape and traumatisation and rape investigation and victimology and profiling and killer by design, to name but a few of her trailblazing books, you're going to want to hear this incredible interview. Until then, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.